All right, well, I was thinking about technology this week. I often do, and how it changes us and shapes us. But I, I will say one piece of technology that I think I may benefit from more than any else in my day-to-day life is GPS. Permit me, those younger high school folks of you, to do a little remembering back. But I remember being in high school and not having anything like GPS or an app that gets me exactly where I want to go, tells me where to go. So you used to have to call people to find out how to get to their house. And again, you didn't have speaker phones, so you had this thing that I know most people don't recognize, but you would lodge this corded thing between your ear and your shoulder and then write down what people are saying. And I even remember being in high school when people would come to our house. I felt almost mature, grown up, empowered when I could tell people how to get off the highway and find our house. That's how we got around. We used maps. I remember, really, believe it or not, my first experience of the internet primarily came my freshman year of college. I remember discovering MapQuest and writing down. I didn't have a printer all the time, so writing down directions on how to get. And I would write. I loved it. They would tell you the exact miles, so I'd always watch. I'm on this road for this many miles, and then I watch for the next turn. And then we end up with GPS on our phones, and I just, I, I just marvel that I can go anywhere. I mean, every once in a while, the app is wrong, but 95% of the time, I just put in this place I've never been to before, and all of a sudden, I can get there. So it's crazy. It's incredible. Even last year, uh, some of you know, when I was on sabbatical, I went out west, and we did a trip to Yellowstone and Glacier. Glacier National Park is one of my favorite places on the planet. But you don't really get a great signal out there, right? But I I discovered you can download giant areas of a map on your phone through these apps. And so even if you don't have a phone signal, you still always have your GPS. And so we never got lost. I mean, it's just, I marvel at GPS. With GPS, you always know where you're at. But before GPS, and again, some of you might not know this, but others can remember, you always needed to locate yourself on the map. You needed that. I mean, maybe you've been to an amusement park or a mall. You you know where you want to go. You can find the store or the ride you want to get to. But before you can get there, you've got to get to that you are here spot on the map so that you know how to get from here to there. And we're going to talk a little bit about locating yourself this morning. I think that's what we're going to hone in on the text It's hard to know where to go unless you know where you are first. And we've been talking about how we want to be led to the cross of Jesus. We want to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. We want to head to Jesus. But we do need to be honest about where we are to begin with. That's the last week in our series, The Cruciform Life. We've been going through 2 Corinthians, and we're going to finish it this morning. There's a lot we could talk about, but... We're going to hone in on this idea of locating ourselves. You'll see as we go through the text this morning. If you want to turn or follow along, we're going to pick up in chapter 12, verse 19. The last few weeks, we've been talking about this fool speech where Paul has kind of been defending his apostleship in the gospel. And so we pick up there. He says, perhaps you think we're saying these things just to defend ourselves because it's about us and our reputation. He says, no, 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 no. We, we tell you this as Christ's servants and with God as our witness. Everything we do, friends, and he means this, everything we do is to strengthen you. 
Remember, these outsiders have come into this church, and Paul said, the outsiders are putting you down in order to lift themselves up. You're a means to their ends. Paul says, but no, 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 I, I, I lower myself to lift you up. You are an end in yourself. I'm not using you. But there's a real situation going on. So verse 20, he says, I'm afraid that when I come, I won't like what I find, and you won't like my response. I'm afraid, and he's going to list off, uh, just think about these, these, these things that he's going to list. It's a kind of a, a, a sin list, if you will, but they're specifically things that are toxic to a community. I'm afraid I'm going to show up and find quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorderly behavior. I'm afraid I'm going to show up to chaos. And I fear for the future of the church because these things will destroy a community. Yes, I'm afraid that when I come again, God will humble me in your presence. I will be grieved by what I experience. I will be grieved because many of you, you still haven't given up your old sins. This is important too. I want to keep in mind what Paul's saying here. You, you've not repented of your impurity your sexual immorality, your eagerness for lustful pleasure. I mean, and what a list. I mean, you think about the world we live in right now. I mean, outside of the church, and maybe sometimes inside the church, though hopefully not as often, right? I mean, there's plenty of places where we can find quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorderly behavior, impurity, sexual immorality, and eagerness for lustful pleasure. I mean, though the times are changing, not that much. And Paul's saying, man, I, I, this stuff's got to get cleaned up. And we've talked about it. And if you want more details on that last verse, just read 1 Corinthians. <laughs> he's, already, I mean, he's, already, he's just referencing it here because he's already talked to them about this a lot. Chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to visit you. And as the scriptures say, the facts of every case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I've already warned you. Those who had been sinning when I was there, I've already wo- I warned those who had been sinning when I was there on my second visit. And now I again warn them and all others, just as I did before, that next time I'm not going to spare them. I care too much about you. If you don't clean things up, I'm going to have to clean it up when I get there. And I was reading through this and thinking, and maybe this will make more sense as we keep reading through it. But I, as a parent, this just resonated with me. And I actually was, I ran this by Jay last night. Some of you are like, do you ask Jay before? I always ask him. <laughs> Jay likes the attention, believe it or not. Believe it or not. But I said, is it okay if I say this, Jay? But, but I think it's true. When I, when I get the angriest at Jay, and I get real, it's real anger, it's when we've talked about something several times. He's acknowledged that we've talked about it. And he has made some kind of comment that he agrees with dad and he's going to try to change. But then he does nothing to change. Oh, I get so mad. And I even had a conversation with him this week. I won't go into the details. I do have my lines, right? But I had a conversation with him this week and I said, look, man, I'm trusting you. And I'm relying on you to operate with self-discipline. But if you can't, I'm going to do it for you because I care about you. And I really think that's what Paul is saying here. 
I want you guys, and you'll, you'll, as we keep reading, you'll see it. I want you guys to clean this up without me. But if you can't, I'm going to clean it up. I've let it go on long enough, and I'm putting my foot down. Because this is really dangerous stuff you're playing with. Verse 3. I will give you all the proof you want that Christ speaks through me. And, and, and he's going to play with this idea. They've been testing him. and We've been talking about that for weeks. They've been testing him. And so he's going to flip it on them. I'll give you all the proof you want. Christ is not weak when he deals with you. He's powerful among you. Although he was crucified in weakness, he now lives by the power of God. We've been talking about that for weeks. We too are weak, just as Christ was. But when we deal with you, we will be alive with him and we'll have God's power. Again, if you want more weakness and power, listen to the podcast. Verse 5, here we are locating ourselves. Paul's going to turn it around. You've been examining us? Well, why don't you examine yourselves? Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. As you test yourselves, I hope that you will recognize that we have not failed the test of apostolic authority. What's he saying here? He's saying, when you listen to what you are saying, and when you watch what you are doing, does it sound and look like it comes from Jesus? When you hold it up to our beauty of standard, Christ on the cross, does it look beautiful or does it look ugly? Does it sound and look like Jesus or more like everyone else around you? And then I think this last line, what he's saying is, he's acknowledging, I'm not much of an apostle if you guys can't live out the Jesus life, <laughs> if you guys are all pretending or faking it, then I'm, I'm not much of an apostle. So, so prove my apostleship by following Jesus. You're my greatest proof. It's kind of what Paul's been saying all the way through the letter. Verse 7, we pray to God that you will not do what is wrong by refusing our correction. And again, this is going to sound a little weird, but I, again, I don't think it's that. I, I, hope when we, I hope we won't need to demonstrate our authority when we arrive. Do the right thing before we come, even if that makes it look like we failed to demonstrate our authority. For we cannot oppose the truth, but always stand for the truth. We're glad to seem weak if it helps show that you are actually strong. We pray that you will become mature. What's, what's he saying there? I think what he's saying is, we'll look more powerful if you're in, a, you're in chaos and a mess and we show up and straighten it out. And we will look weaker if you don't need us to straighten it out, but I'd rather you not need us. I'd rather you straight. I don't mind looking weak. <laughs> I mean, again, I think what Paul wants is maturity. And maturity means that this church can operate because Christ is there. The Spirit is there. They don't need Paul. They need Jesus. And he's there. You guys work it out. I think Paul wants that to see that the church is growing. And I also think Paul wants to continue his mission. And he doesn't want to have to keep coming back to Corinth. <laughs> grow up, he says. Be mature. <laughs> it's time to grow up. And I want to say this, even as I was prepping, I just felt kind of like, I, this, I'm not talking to all of you, and I don't even know who I'm talking to. But a few of you, I mean, we had a moment of confession earlier in the service. I just read through a list of sins. A few of you might even take this list of sins that we read at the end of chapter 12 and say, yeah, I've been dealing with that sin for a long time, but you've been making excuses, <laughs> making excuses. And I just want you to hear, I think God is saying as a loving parent through the Apostle Paul, grow up. It's time to grow up. Grow up in Christ. 
Some of these things that you've been making, stop making excuses and get some help. It's time to grow up. Be mature. Look like Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. Again, I'm writing this to you, verse 10, before I come, hoping that I won't need to deal severely with you when I do come. For I want to use the authority the Lord has given me to strengthen you, not to tear you down. We've already had a painful visit. We don't need to do it again. Work it out. And then he ends the letter uh, just beautifully. Dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these last words. Be joyful. (laughs) Grow to maturity. Again, grow up. Grow up. Encourage each other. In other words, build each other up. Live in harmony and peace. Again, it's like the opposite of that list we read at the end of chapter 12. No, we're going to live in harmony and peace. And that's not easy, but it's beautiful. And listen to this. Paul says, the God of love and peace will be with you. I love that. Greet each other with a sacred kiss. If you've ever traveled to other cultures, sometimes you... I've done this. You kind of kiss on both sides of the cheek. You almost kiss the air. Something like that, right? And all of God's people here send you their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And that's how Paul ends his letter. It's a beautiful letter. We'll talk about its results. But I I love how it is. This, This idea of it's time to grow up. Do some self-examination. It's why we frequently say, come as you are, but don't stay where you are. Look, don't, clean, don't try to clean. You can't clean yourself up. Don't, don't try to clean yourself up before you come to church. Come with all your junk and all your dirt and all your... You come, but don't stay there. Grow up. <laughs> Be mature. Grow in Christ. And, and Paul's kind of last plea... Last exhortation to the church in Corinth is to do some self-examination. So that's what we're going to talk about. For centuries, people have extolled the virtue of self-examination. The ancient Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. The the great uh, saint from our past, St. Augustine, wrote, Oh God, let me know myself and let me know you. And the modern-day poet Ice Cube said, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. (laughs) Or maybe you'd rather a Bible quote. (laughs) In Psalm 139, David was keenly aware that although God knew everything about him, David didn't know everything about himself. So David wrote these very famous words, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and then lead me in the everlasting way. Lord, show me me. Help me with this self-examination. Let me just ask you, church, when was the last time you spent 30 minutes reflecting on your life? 30 minutes. Maybe that sounds crazy. How about just 10 minutes? When was the last time you spent 10 minutes reflecting on your life, examining your actions, noticing your reactions to circumstances, and and asking the question, why do I react that way? Paying attention to the stories that you tell yourself over and over, and where did those stories come from? And are they from God? When was the last time you paid attention to the amount of pain 
and shame that you were carrying with you when you got out of bed in the morning? When was the last time you paused to pay attention to where God was moving in your life? I mean, where you're going to see the most transformation is wherever God is moving in your life. When did you last pay attention to how you're using your time? Do you ever, how did I get this schedule? Did I come up with the schedule or did I just fall into it? And I tell you frequently, you and I will never drift into the Jesus life. You have to be intentional to take up your cross. And sometimes we drift and we drift into modern day Babylon ways of thinking. When was the last time you stepped back, stepped back and examined your priorities and your values and said, are these really of you, God? Or have I picked these up in other places? <laughs> Let me give you an example of what I mean. I've read from this book one other time. It's by Tish Harrison Warren. I just think she's a, she's a good storyteller. And I think rather than try to give you like a step-by-step way of doing this, let me just give you one example she gives. As she's telling a story from her life, it's just a 15-minute moment of her life, but she can only tell it this way because she's done some self-examination. I think you'll like it. She says, I have a plan for my morning. I run by the store to... I plan to run by the store to pick up a side for dinner and some dish soap and then head to a meeting. So after I brush my teeth and help my husband Jonathan Jonathan get the kids off to their activities, I get dressed quickly and I eat breakfast. I throw on my favorite corduroy coat, hoist my computer bag over my shoulder, and I head toward the door. I go to grab the car keys on the entry table that we bought for the express purpose of having a spot for keys. Next to the jar of dried lavender and stack of mail are two key rings that hold the keys to the car, the house, and our neighbor's house, as well as a couple others, the purpose of which I've forgotten, but I keep holding on to them because you never know. Cue the sound of screeching brakes. The keys aren't there. I check the side pocket of my bag, then the pants I wore yesterday, then my bag again. I start to panic a little. I take off my coat. I walk into my kitchen, and I look on the counter. I've lost my keys. With them goes all sense of perspective. With them goes my plan. With them goes my cool. These instruments that I use for security and freedom to lock out bad guys and get where I need to go have suddenly become a means of imprisonment. And I'm stuck. Where could they be? I go through my stages of searching for lost objects. Stage one, logic. I retrace my steps. I look in the places that make sense. I breathe. I try to remain calm and rational. This is not that big of a deal. It'll turn up. Stage two, self-condemnation. As I make my way through each room, scanning shelves and surfaces, I begin to self-flagellate under my breath. I'm such an idiot. Where did I put those keys? Why am I such an idiot? Stage three, vexation. I get frustrated. Each second that passes leaves me slightly angrier. I switch back and forth between blaming myself and blaming others. My kids, they probably played with them and lost them. Did Jonathan take them? I text him. No help there. God must know where my keys are. Why isn't he helping me here? I'm having a mild theological crisis over a two-inch piece of metal. Stage four, desperation. I start looking everywhere, even places that don't make sense. I'm rummaging through random drawers and looking under beds, checking the pants pockets that I've already checked three times, grumbling. I check the time. It's been nine minutes. Stage five, last ditch. I stop and pray. Okay, breathe, I tell myself. I'm being ridiculous. I'm overreacting. Calm down. 
I quickly ask God for a restoration of perspective. Stage six, despair. I give up. I plop on the couch. I'll never find my keys. The cause is hopeless. I'm hopeless. I will be trapped here until the end of time or until we shell out the money to replace them. Everything is worthless. The morning is ruined. Stupid keys, stupid me, stupid planet, stupid universe. Some of you are relating, I think. Then a bit ashamed and guilty about my overreaction, I pull myself together and beginning at step one, repeat the cycle. Seven minutes later, I find my keys under the couch. I have no idea how they got there. I yelped to no one in particular. Found them. Cue the hallelujah chorus. I will quickly move on out the driveway, skip the grocery store, and head straight to the meeting. My lost keys ended up being a hiccup in the day. No big deal. A tiny forgettable 15 minutes. But, she says, it was also the apocalypse. And listen to what she means. Apocalypse literally means an unveiling or uncovering. In my anger, in my grumbling, in my self-berating, in my, in my doubt and in my despair, I glimpsed for a few minutes how tightly I cling to control and how little control I actually have. Do you understand she's self-examining priorities and values? And she says, in the absence of control, feeling stuck and stressed, those parts of me that I prefer to keep hidden were momentarily unveiled. It's a great story of self-examination from a seemingly insignificant 15 minutes, right? It's a good story. So what I want to try to do, because we care about discipleship, I want to take a little bit more time because I don't know how many of us pause to do self-examining. So let me try to meet you wherever you are this morning. Maybe you're like, I'm not doing that. I don't know how to do that. Let me first offer you what some people call a spiritual discipline of slowing. This is from uh, John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. One of you actually read this and gave this book to me. And near the end, he says this, Jesus lived in a village in the first century, not a city in the 21st. Jesus didn't drive a car or field text messages, and a late night run to Taco Bell wasn't an option. And what I'm going to write about next are modern practices based on my attempt at following Jesus while living in a city, raising a family, and having a smartphone, and having constant Wi-Fi access. Could it be that we need a few creatively new spiritual disciplines to survive the modern world? Some counter habits to wage war against what some people are calling hyper-living. He talks about the spiritual discipline of slowing, cultivating patience by deliberately choosing to place ourselves in positions where we simply have to wait. I want to start here because some of you, the thought of just sitting in your living room and turning off all the noise and doing some self-examination is super intimidating. So if that's where you're at, let me just give you some creative ideas to practice this discipline of slowing. And I do think if you put yourself in some of these situations and step out of this story of hyper-living, 
you will begin to naturally do a little bit of self-examination. So what does he say? Well, first he says, try driving the speed limit. (laughs) Not below the speed limit, that's annoying and everyone will hate you, but drive the actual speed limit. Then he says, and no offense to anyone, this is what he says, get into the slow lane. Just rock it with grandma and the Oldsmobile or the semi-hauling Walmart contraband. He says, come to a full stop at stop signs. Don't text and drive. Show up 10 minutes to a meeting, but don't pull out your phone. Leave it tucked away. And then the last one I'll read. I'm just trying to get you thinking, but this was my favorite. He says, get in the longest checkout line at the grocery store. He says, I know you're hating me right now. In an efficiency-obsessed culture, why would we do that? That is literally wasting time on purpose. He says, well, here's why I do it. Listen to this. It's a way to slow down my life and deal with the hurry in my soul. It gives me a few minutes to come off the drug of speed to pray and listen, to take an inventory of my emotional and spiritual vitals. That's self-examination in the longest line in the grocery store. And he says, here's the deeper motivation. It's wise to regularly deny ourselves from getting what we want whether through a practice as intense as fasting or as minor as picking the longest checkout line. That way, when somebody else denies us from getting what we want, we don't respond with anger. We're already acclimated. We don't have to get our way to be happy. Let me translate that in light of our text. That's called growing up. That's called growing up. You know it. I don't get my way, and I'm still okay. Every parent in the room knows you said that to your kids before. You don't always get your... It's called growing up. Grow up. Grow up. (laughs) That's what Paul says. Be mature. He says, naturally, this takes a while for most of us, so start small at aisle three. So it's just, again, stuff to think about. I mean, I think... If sitting down with a journal seems crazy, well, then get in the, sl- the longest line at the grocery store and find it. It's crazy. You'll laugh. You and your heavenly father, you're like, I can't believe I'm doing this, God. Everyone's lying. That, that line, there's only one person. I, you, sir, you can come over here. No, I'm good in this line. Spiritual discipline for me, right? Like, it's just. But then you do need to begin locating yourself at some point. What I want to do is give you three questions. I don't even know that they're the best questions, but they're literally questions I've been asking. (laughs) So three questions, big picture questions to begin to locate yourself. I told you a couple weekends ago, uh, Jay was out of town on a school trip, and so Kami and I kind of had an extended weekend of dating, a little bit more time together, a little bit more margin. And at some point during the weekend, as we were just trying to to catch up. We've been married 19 years. We've been through a lot together. And I, I wanted to locate her and locate myself. I, I wanted to, I, I mean, you may enjoy answering. I wanted to answer these questions with Kami. Find a friend and answer. And I wanted to hear what she was going to say. And my sister was actually in town last week. And I asked her these, I asked my sister because I wanted to know how she doing. So here are the questions. Question one, super simple. It'll, it'll begin to help locate yourself as you, as you look at your big picture of your life, September 2023, what are you grateful for? 
Like force yourself to answer, what are you grateful for? It's a good place to start. Or, or you could say, what, what in your life is, is giving you life? What is refreshing your soul, restoring your soul? Remember, there's a difference between relaxing and restoring. What's restoring your soul? <laughs> or, where's, or, or where's God at work, right? But, but the, the question I ask is, what are you grateful for? Start there. Question one. Just place yourself on the big map. In this season of your life, what are you grateful for? The second question then I asked, and I don't mean this as a consumer. I mean this as a human being made in the image of God, given God-given desires. What do you want more of? What do you want more of? Relationships, love, attention, opportunities, I don't know, growth. What do you want more of? Or maybe you're in a season where that's not strong enough. What do you need more of? But be honest with yourself. September 2020, what do you you want more of? What do you need more of? Take inventory. Do some self-examination. Is there something not good in your life that is draining life out of you? So what do you need more of to fill your cup? Right? Because Psalm 23 tells us the good shepherd wants your cup to be overflowing. God is limitlessly generous. What do you you want more of? And then the last question, because I think sometimes this is really important. What are you grateful for? What do you want more of? If you look at where you are in life right now, what surprises you? Expectations play a greater role in our lives than you and I tend to be aware of. What did you expect would be in your life right now that's not? Or what did you expect wouldn't be in your life and is? I mean, it can be a whole variety of things, but just what are you surprised by? At this age in your life, you're living here in this area. What are you, what are you surprised by? Just, but that'll begin to locate you on the map. And then as you get the big picture, where are you? Then I think you can, it, it'll free you to start paying more attention to these 15-minute intervals in your life when you're reacting and overreacting to now fine-tune, gain an understanding of the details of your life for a, a deeper level of self-examination. Again, just along this line of thinking, later in the chapter As Tish is reflecting on this, this is what she said. She said, these moments are an opportunity. These 15-minute moments, losing your keys, overreacting, when you recognize the anger, when you you notice your values or priorities are maybe askew from the kingdom, they're they're opportunities for, for, for formation or what we would call sanctification. Underneath these overreactions and aggravations lie true fears. And I promise you, this is where Jesus wants to meet you and heal you and set you free. She says, my lost keys reveal my anxiety that I won't be able to do what I need to do to take care of myself and those around me. They hit on my fear of failure and incompetency. That's self-examination. My broken dishwater uncovers my, my broken dishwasher uncovers my worries about money. Will we have enough to fix it? And it exposes my idolatry of ease, my false hope in comfort and convenience. I just want things to run smoothly. Today, my lost keys provide a moment of revelation, revealing the lostness inside me and my misplaced reliance. 
when the day is lovely and sunny and everything is going according to plan, I can look like a pretty good person. But little things gone wrong and interrupted plans reveal who I really am. My cracks show, and I see that I'm profoundly in need of grace. I see that I can't stay where I am. I see, I hear the Holy Spirit saying, it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. Jesus is with you. It's time to grow up. And she says, here's the thing. Jesus came for the lost. He came for the broken. In his love for us, he came to usher us into his foundness and his wholeness. So I want to invite you into self-examination this week. Again, that might look different. If you want to be crazy, set aside 30 minutes of prayer with a journal at some time. Do some self-examination. If you are an extrovert, you don't have to do this alone. Now, you just need somebody who is willing to listen to you ramble and be a verbal processor. But, but do some self-examination this week. The next question might then be, what do I do with what I learn? Because we're not navel-gazing for navel-gazing's sake. What do you do with what you learn? Well, if you've been with us through this series, what have we set? <laughs> Jesus' arms stretched out on the cross is our standard of beauty. And so we take what we learn about where we are, if we have the courage and humility to be honest about it, but you got to pay attention. And then we hold it up to the cross. And whatever's beautiful, we celebrate. And whatever's ugly, we confess and repent. And we grow up. We come as we are, but we don't stay there. And we begin to walk with Jesus and we walk with our church family because you need other people. It's hard to practice peace and harmony all by yourself. You need other people. And so we walk together and we learn together and, and, we, and we take what we learn about ourselves and we hold it up to the cross and then we continue to aim at Jesus because not only does he reveal who God is, he also reveals what it means to be human. You and I will drift, but we hold it up to the cross. And whenever I come to moments like this in my sermon prep, I always get excited and I'm like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to type out just like the coolest list of criteria so I know what's beautiful like Jesus and what's not. And I went to do that this week and I just heard this little voice, I think it was the Holy Spirit in the back of my head saying, uh, you already know the list. <laughs> I heard Jesus being like, I've already told you the list. You pray it every day. Don't invent something on your own. Just go back to what I've given you. So church, you've heard me say this before, but go to the Beatitudes. <laughs> Again, if you want to do a check, a health check, a self-examination, read through the Beatitudes and just see if you get uncomfortable with the kind of people Jesus blesses. And you're going to start to have a grid. It's a little bit of self-examination of I've drifted into modern-day Babylon thinking. So I read this a few weeks ago. I'm going to do it again just because I think it's helpful. You can get the actual Beatitudes in Matthew 5, but I told you I've been collecting a whole variety of people try to help us understand what Jesus is saying. So here's my list. Um, I didn't come up with this. Somebody else did. I just kind of captured it word for word from them. But, but it gives us a way, again, of thinking about the difference of life in what we call modern-day Babylon and life in the kingdom. Here, it's the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age blesses the cocky and self-confident, but Jesus blesses the poor in spirit. Just be examining your day, your values, your priorities. The spirit of the age blesses those who are shallow and thus happy all the time, 
But Jesus blesses those who have the capacity to mourn deeply. The spirit of the age blesses the power-hungry who want to run the world, but Jesus blesses the meek who are willing to trust God. The spirit of the age blesses the privileged protectors, but Jesus blesses the justice seekers. The spirit of the age blesses those who think justice is retribution and revenge. Jesus blesses the merciful instead. The spirit of the age blesses the clever ones who come up with the best schemes. Jesus blesses the pure-hearted who have no schemes. Again, we don't use people for our own ends. We value people in and of themselves. And finally, the spirit of the age blesses those who are great at waging war. I, I kept coming back to this one as I was reading 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <laughs> the, the last few verses that we started with this morning. Spirit of the age blesses those who are great at waging war. Jesus blesses those who have the patience to work for peace. I want you to hold on to that. Does he? Does he really do that? And then the spirit of the age blesses those who fight for might, right? Push others down to build themselves up. Jesus blesses those who suffer for what is right. So I want to ask the question, does Jesus really do this? Does he bless those who have the patience to work for peace? Paul was very patient as he was working for peace. War was waging in Corinth. I mean, Paul literally says that some haven't repented, but he refuses to give in or give up or just think that they won't. He, Paul is not a cynic. He's a hopeful man. So does it work? Does the church in Corinth wake up before Paul gets there or not? Well, on one level, we don't really know, right? But we kind of know. I actually think we, we do know. I don't think we would have 2 Corinthians if it hadn't done anything. If you ever study how we got our New Testament, one of the major things was they, they went to all the churches operating in the areas, and, and what were they using? What gospels were they using? What letters from Paul were they using as they gathered to worship Jesus? 2 Corinthians was one of them. The Corinthians had shared this letter with other churches. You could imagine churches gathering. Corinth used to be this way. God was at work. Look what Paul told them. Now they're different. Now they're beautiful. You got to read this and copy it down, pass it to another church. Guess what Paul told them in Corinth? We got to learn this. Learn about the weakness of the cross, the power of Christ resurrected. I think the reason we have the letter is because it worked. But I also think it worked because Paul says, he hints at it in Romans 15. Romans 15, verse 25. If you were with us earlier in the series, Paul had talked about this collection. It was one of the reasons he was writing. He says, before I come, I must go to Jerusalem to take a gift to the believers there, right? That was that collection. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, that would be our church in Corinth, have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. <laughs> they were glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them since the Gentiles received the spiritual blessings of the good news from the believers in Jerusalem. They feel the least they can do in, is, in return is to help them financially. I think it worked. <laughs> I think it worked. Paul was patient, but I don't think he had to show up and be severe. I think they had already repented. <laughs> They've grown up. And you and I can too, because that's what our God is inviting us into. So I'm going to invite you uh, to bow your heads and pray um, as we continue in our worship. Uh, Jesus, we are so grateful for the invitation to come as we are. We're not perfect, but we don't want to. I mean, 
if we're honest, some of us do. We, we do kind of want to stay where we are because we're afraid to change. We're afraid to, to be honest about the junk in our life or, we're, or we don't know how to be different. But then again, when we reflect upon you on the cross and your sacrificial love, we want to be different. We want to be other. We don't want to stay where we are. We want to grow up. We want to be mature. We want to we live into the trueness of what it means to be human. And so Jesus, change us. Be gentle with us. We trust that you'll be patient with us, but also be powerful and help us be the men and women you are calling us to be. In your name we pray, amen.